Episode 5 of our Alternate 100. Uh, like Bon Jovi, uh, we're halfway there. Uh, 50 films down, or we will be 50 films down by the end of this episode. 50 to go. Uh, Ed, how you doing, sir? You right? Yeah, I'm doing very well. Uh, I'm a little bit... Uh, it's a little bit weird today because uh, for people to go behind the curtain a little bit, we usually record these really late at night to accommodate our various schedules, and this is one of the very few times that we're both recording in the middle of the day. Mm. Uh, and uh, I'm just wondering if it will give it a different feel and a different flavour. Mm. I'll certainly be uh, more coherent, uh, given that I've um, had two square meals and already been already been out for a run today. So uh, you know, I feel it's a like good start. yeah, I'm kind of in shape and ready for this recording. Um, so ten more films. Um, you know the selection criteria now. If you don't, then jog on. Um, um, so, yeah, let's uh, crack on. Uh, episode 5, films, uh, what would they be? Uh, 41 to 50, I guess. Yep. Um, yep. We'll follow this jingle. The Alternate 100. Okay, first film. Of today, a film that uh, kind of lurks on the periphery of these kind of lists um, perennially, but kind of is is always the bridesmaid and never the bride. Uh, this is Peter Bogdanovich's The Last Picture Show. Um, given how key this film is to that kind of new Hollywood uh, movement in the 70s, um, I don't know if we mentioned it, we do like that kind of era. Um, why is this the one that always kind of slips behind The Godfather and uh, Taxi Driver and Mean Streets and so on and so forth? I think it, it along with Paper Moon, probably, probably suffers from being lumped in with, you know, Peter Bogdanovich's career kind of imploding at the end of the decade mm. for, for reasons both uh, personal and professional. Uh, I think that probably plays a lot into it when, in the same way that, uh, you know, Michael Giamino's uh, Thunderbolt and Lightfoot doesn't get the respect that it probably deserves because of Heaven's Gate and things like that. Mm. Uh, I feel that his stock falling kind of made people undervalue the work that he did prior to that, uh, which is a real shame because this this film's a huge hit at the time. It had a lot of star-making turns from Jeff Bridges, who I think, uh, people like Jeff Bridges, who I think may be the actor who's on this list more than anyone else. I think that's a safe assumption. Uh, and, you know, Sybil Shepherd, who's uh, who's really, really great in it. Uh, uh, Timothy Bottoms. Uh, is Randy Quaid? Randy Quaid's in it, yeah, really young. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, there's all these kind of people who would go on to be, you know, great actors and huge stars, and it was nominated for a bunch of Oscars, and it was a huge hit, and it was a film that uh, was just really, really terrific, but has kind of fallen by the wayside, and that is, you know, a terrible shame, because I think it, it can stack up with a lot of the films that do get all of the acclaim and the attention from that era. Yeah, and it's, it's interesting that, like you say, the star-making turns 
um, are kind of very prominent. The, the film is about kind of life in a in a real kind of dust bowl town. Uh, it's an unbelievably stark film. Uh, this kind of uh, one horse town. Um, but there, there are a lot of kind of young actors in it, like Jeff, Jeff Bridges, Timothy Bottom, Civil Shepherd, Randy Quaid, like you mentioned. But then there's also uh, the kind of older generation, um, uh, Cloris Leachman, um, uh, Ellen Burstyn, uh, Ben Johnson, a lot of kind of old school movie stars, or older school mo- movie stars who are kind of... Um, uh, kind of signing off. Maybe like Alan Burstyn, she was a kind of a bit, bit too young for that. But there's quite a few of them, and it it, it feels a, a lot like one of those films that's a kind of passing the torch over from generation to generation. Yeah, and, and I think that also plays in the narrative as well because it is all about these people, these young young people in this Texas town who all seem to kind of uh, are a bit aimless and don't really know what they want to do with their lives, and also that older generation of people who have kind of got stuck in the town and living you know, lives of, of quiet desperation, uh, which is very, it's a very kind of poignant contrast between those two generations. Yeah. Um, it's a beautifully shot film. Uh, it was a black and white film uh, and the photography uh, kind of does lend that stark feel, uh, more depth uh, than you could have been if it had been in colour. Um, probably talked last episode about uh, the vanishing having one of the worst remakes uh, of all time. I would probably say that uh, The Last Picture Show is probably the film on our list that has the most unnecessary sequel. Yeah, that's a real shame, especially because I think the book Texas... Is it Texasville? Texasville, yeah. Yeah, the book Texasville, which is the the sequel that Larry McMurtry wrote, is actually pretty good. Uh, It's not as, as great as the book of The Last Picture Show, which is... You know, one of the great works of uh, of realist fiction in America, American history, and has all of the great qualities that make the film so kind of uh, sweet and sad and and interesting. Uh, but yeah, for some reason, getting all that cast together years later, uh, it just didn't feel the same. I don't know if that is because none of them were that invested in revisiting those characters, or the or Hollywood had changed too much for the film to have the same kind of quality. Especially because it's it, the sequel is shot in colour mm. uh, and obviously feels very different. Kind of uh, talking about Peter Bogdanovich's career, I mean, he did this and Targets and Paper Moon and then, like you say, his career kind of imploded in, in, in kind of Chimino fashion. Um, and he never really got it back, did he? No, I think he had a, a kind of a minor hit in the 80s with Mask. Mm. Uh, and critically, I think he got a lot of love for his... His most recently released film, The Cat's Meow, which was kind of a screwball comedy throwback with, I believe, Eddie Izzard playing Charlie Chaplin, which got a lot of love when it came out in 2001. But since then, he's been confined to doing sort of work on TV as an actor, because he he acted on The Sopranos for a few years, Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, the odd directing gig. I think he's got a film coming out next year, which a lot of people are raving about so far. But, uh, yeah, he's someone who never seemed to recover from the the collapse of his career. Yeah, a real shame, because, like I say, two of those films that we just mentioned are listed on our, our top 100. We talked about Targets on, on the second episode. Um, and, yeah, he's a, he's a filmmaker who I really kind of want to see breaking out of the ghetto that he finds himself in, which is uh, basically doing talking head spots on DVD, extra features wearing a cravat. He's always with the cravat. Yeah, he does have kind of a dream career. I think we mentioned this in the past, that going from being film fan to film critic and kind of 
a repertory cinema programmer to actual uh, filmmaker and fan of all of his heroes, a uh, friend of all of his heroes, mm. including Orson Welles, who was the one who suggested that they shoot uh, Last Picture Show in black and white. Wow. And he lived with him, didn't he? Orson Welles lived with Peter Bogdanovich uh, for a bit. Yeah, when, yeah, when he was having uh, money troubles and he moved into a wing of uh, Peter Bogdanovich's mansion. God, his fridge must have taken some serious hammer, I tell you. <laughs> uh, maybe Peter Bogdanovich will go through the same cycle and uh, he'll end up living with, like, I don't know, Paul W.S. Anderson or something. Like, in the future. <laughs> yeah, it does, that just does not bear thinking about. Um, so, yeah, last picture show, uh, good way to kick things off. Um, uh, whilst we're talking about the 70s, um, which is, you know, like we say all the time, uh, it was pretty good. Um, the next film we've got is a documentary about one of those films. Uh, we're talking about uh, Hearts of Darkness. So for those who don't know, Hearts of Darkness is a documentary uh, that tells the mildly interesting tale of how Apocalypse Now was made. And I, I believe the film begins with um, uh, a section of an interview with um, uh, Francis Ford Coppola, who directed the film, uh, saying that what went wrong with Apocalypse Now was they uh, had access to too much money, uh, too much equipment, and they went to the jungle and little by little they went insane. And Hearts of Darkness does a pretty good job of documenting that. Yeah, the, the production of Hearts of Darkness is something that, you know, when you read about it, it does sound completely crazy, you know, running over budget and over time, taking years to complete uh, miles upon miles of footage that needed to be edited down, losing a leading man, the second leading man having a heart attack and having to hide him from the insurance people in order to avoid the film getting shut down people dying on set whole uh, areas of the film being destroyed by bad weather it's just this list of calamities you forgot the war oh yeah the war yeah, yeah there's a war going on as well so there's all these things going on in the background but reading about it is a very different experience to watching it because i remember reading about the production in easy riders raging bulls and, you know, there's a kind of a, an, an insane, absurd quality to it. But when you watch it, it and, you know, seeing the disasters play out on set and people talk about them in real time, there's a real immediacy to the disasters that uh, the film captures brilliantly. Yeah. Um, and it's so kind of, like, intimately captured in the sense that Eleanor Coppola shot a lot of the footage and she had, mm. uh, obviously being uh, Francis Ford's Coppola's wife, she was on set all the time. It was a long production. They were away with the whole family. And yeah, the the kind of access that he get, she gets is is uh, uh, well, you could never get that kind of access today. Yeah, it is of a time when I think sets were not as micromanaged as they are now, mm. and you know it's hard to imagine a film of that scale being made now and having someone there to document it. Uh, intimately without people from the studio being there, unless they were in the same situation where they were filming 
in and around a war zone. Yeah. <laughs> You're not going to get many uh, uh, many studio heads kind of popping in to visit when there's a chance to get the heads blown off. Mm. Uh, and the, the wonder I have every time I watch it is, it's a little wonder that, that, that more people didn't die during the production of Apocalypse Now. Mm. Because... Uh, I mean, what was going on? We mentioned there was a war. I mean, they had things like they, they had got the, the Philippines Army to provide uh, a lot of the helicopters uh, for the background stuff, and they'd be shooting a scene, a kind of a really wildly elaborate scene with lots of pyrotechnics and, you know, hundreds of extras and stuff. And then all of a sudden, like, you know, the helicopter captain would say, I'm sorry, I've just got like a call. We're going to have to go and fight some rebels in the mountains. And they just have to nip off and actually have an actual scrap. And, you know, some of the pilots like, wouldn't return. Um, it's kind of crazy that they're like, they even considered doing that. And it, it's a great kind of part of the, the seventies excess and the ultimately the, the downfall of, of that whole caper that, um, you know, studios would let crazy people like Francis Ford Coppola do that. Yeah. Especially because it's, it kind of fulfills this, you know, there's that idea of it not being about Vietnam. It is Vietnam. Mm. Uh, and you do get a sense that for Coppola, it really was his war. You know, it was something he went out into the jungle. He became kind of a Kurtz-like figure. Uh, and when they talk about the writing of it, he says that's why the ending of the film always felt really kind of formless because he didn't know how to end the film and how to deal with Kurtz because he felt if he was killing Kurtz, he might be killing himself or something. Uh, and it's a really fascinating film that kind of doubles as a self-portrait of the man who made it. Yeah, which is uh, is something that really comes across in the film because when you see him, it's very easy to kind of draw the parallels between the way he's acting and the way that uh, you know, like Dennis Hopper, his character is acting in the film in the final film as kind of a a zealot who's just devoted to com- completing his cause. Yeah, if, if anyone wants to see uh, like a truly monumental piece of film history, there's a bit of footage where. Um, Francis Ford Coppola is attempting to direct Dennis Hopper and Dennis Hopper is tripping his tits off um, <laughs> as uh, the, you know, kind of drug use and, and everything else was kind of rampant on the set. And I mean, I always start to wonder what, what Dennis Hopper thought was going on because <laughs> he was clearly <laughs> off his tits um, and he's there on this, you know, these huge sets with like loads of natives and stuff and kind of cows being slaughtered and all this kind of thing. And I wonder if he thought he was actually in a film or whether he was just just kind of, this was just a, like a party that had got out of hand. Because um, he certainly is not taking France's direction very well. Yeah, I imagine that much of the 70s for Dennis Hopper was like, you know, Inland Empire. It was a, a kind of a, a period of his life where film and reality kind of blended into one. And if you asked him to recall what was real and what was uh, just something he did for film, he would have he would have had very great difficulty telling you which was which. Mm. Um, Hearts of Darkness is a film about, a documentary specifically about the making of a film with an interesting production history. Um, other films that kind of do a very similar thing, both very well, um, Burden of Dreams, the Les Blank film about uh, Fitzcarraldo, and um, uh, what's the other one I'm thinking of? Uh, Lost in La Mancha, uh, mm. of the um, even kind of more insane problems that Lost... Uh, the, uh, uh, Terry Gilliam's attempt to make the Don Quixote film faced um, still don't quite manage to have that kind of rawness that Hearts of Darkness have. Yeah, I think it, it it's because even though both of those films were equally kind of insane experiences, I mean, the Fitzcarraldo is an absolute uh, 
is just crazy, the entire story of how that film was made. And the idea that it's a film about someone dragging a boat over a hill and going deep into the jungle and going insane for art. Mm. And is literally that is what Werner Herzog did for Fitzcarraldo. And the film captures that. And I think in moments, uh, Burden of Dreams does kind of have that, that level of intensity, such as the scene where they're showing how they uh, shot the boat going through the rapids and smashing up against cliff faces, which they did by taking a real boat and crashing it into cliffs. Mm. Um, but yeah, I, I think the the level of access that Eleanor Coppola, Coppola had is the real difference. Because even though Les Blanc is there and obviously he's he's taking part, I think there's a certain degree of remove that you don't really have if you're married to the director, you're there and you're intimately there all the time. So it's kind of, I think that that, that is the, the key difference between them. Another good film from this year that is about a film, uh, a crazy production history, is the, the documentary uh, Jodorowsky's Dune, which I think if you look at the spectrum of, uh, you know, Apocalypse Now uh, and Lost in La Mancha, this is kind of like the third step, because Apocalypse Now is a crazy production history about a film that did, uh, got made, Lost in Mancha about a film that almost got made, and Jodorowsky's Dune about a film that didn't get made. So it's an interesting trilogy there. Yeah, um, one that we would definitely recommend uh, people do. I've not seen Jodorowsky's Dune, um, but um, I've read a lot about it and it sounds uh, pretty crackers. Yeah, there's lots of, of good stories. Especially That one's especially interesting because it's kind of like the exact opposite of Hearts of Darkness in every way because it's about a, a pre-production for a film that seemed blessed because he got everyone he wanted. He got Orson Welles, he got Pink Floyd to do the soundtrack, he got Salvador Dali to appear in it for like five minutes. He had all these people lined up, all this insane cast and creatives, and then just in the end, the, the money wasn't there and it fell apart. Mm, yeah. Whereas Apocalypse Now is, you know, a film that was seemed to be cursed from the beginning and that, you know, went through lots of different permutations. At one point, it was going to be shot by on 16mm by George Lucas, actually in Vietnam. Uh, which I think would have been absolutely crazy. Um, and, and I think there's a very good chance we wouldn't have got Star Wars if that had happened, either because Lucas's career would have gone in a very different way or he would have died. Mm, yeah. I think there's only, those are the only two ways that that would have ended. Uh, and, you know, when it actually got shot, it seemed to be through sheer force of will that Coppola and his crew managed to actually get it finished. And it ended up being, you know, one of the greatest films of all time. Like we were saying earlier, like, films would never be made like this again, uh, like Apocalypse Now. Um, is is that actually true? Um, I mean, with digital photography, uh, digital trickery nowadays, you can pretty much kind of do anything. Um, but, you know, do you think there'll ever, ever be a film with production circumstances anywhere near to Apocalypse Now? I mean, I'm trying to think of examples of what there might have been in the last few years, and I just can't. Uh, I can't think of any that... I can't imagine it being done and being bankrolled by a major studio. Mm -hmm. I could imagine someone doing it on a very low budget and going out and just kind of, you know, freed of all the studio tinkering, making a film out in the wilderness that has that same level of intensity and that, uh, you know, the same problems that exacerbated because you don't have the money to make up for when the things go wrong, as Terry Gilliam has demonstrated on multiple occasions. Uh, but yeah, I find it hard to imagine it being done on that scale and with that, unless you have like a crazy billionaire bankrolling it, that's the only way I could really see it happening. Yeah. Maybe Francis Ford Coppola has saved enough enough money and then just before he kind of perishes, uh, he'll kind of find some young kid and just say, right, go nuts. Um, but yeah, other than that, I can't see, 
uh, it happened over again. And it's good that Hearts of Darkness exists as a document to uh, to that never happening again. In fact, that's probably a cautionary tale as to why that would never happen again. Uh, because uh, you know, studio executives, and this is a, a thing that happened quite a lot at the end of the seventies, start of the eighties. They'd be like, "You want to do what now? How much is it going to cost?" No, that's crazy. Um, let's just uh, stick a shark in it and uh, sell it to kids. Um, okay, next film we are going to talk about um, is our first entry uh, from the Coen Brothers. Uh, they're kind of incredibly consistent siblings. Um, you may have heard of them. Um, and we've picked uh, their film Miller's Crossing. Um, kind of written as they were trying to figure out how to do Barton Fink. Is that correct? Uh, no, it's the other way around. Oh, they, the other were, way around. They, they were writing the script for Miller's Crossing, which is very dense, very intricate, noir with lots of uh, you know very uh, complicated moving parts and a very uh, long and, and convoluted story. And they kept hitting writer's block, so they kind of took a, a break from that and wrote this dark, intense little story about um, someone suffering from writer's block, which uh, allowed them to kind of work through their issues and, and complete Miller's Crossing, which is great because we got two amazing films for the price of one. Yeah, uh, Miller's Crossing is um, a period piece, uh, a kind of, ostensibly, it's a kind of gangster film uh, set with kind of Irish gangsters and Jewish gangsters and Italian gangsters kind of facing off against each other, um, all tied together with uh, Gabriel Burns' uh, lead character, um, who is just trying to get out of there without causing any real trouble, <laughs> but ends up kind of playing everyone else off against each other. Yeah, it's, it's uh, heavily indebted to the works of Dashiell Hammett, particularly Red Harvest and The Glass Key, mm-hmm. which both kind of... It, there's lots of elements of that. They're all stories about rival gangs and the one guy who learns how to play off all of them. And... Uh, if nothing else, I think that that film probably turned a lot of people, including me, onto Dashiell Hammett because you know you can re- when you read the books you can really see that influence. And I think what the Coens really bring to it is this kind of slightly melancholy uh, flavour. You know, it's it has all these kind of pulp trappings, but it also has this. Uh, it's really invested in you know the relationships between Gabriel Byrne and uh, Albert Finney, who is you know plays the the head of the Irish gangsters who. They're, you know, they're really, really good friends. And over the course of the film, because of the various ploys that Gabriel Byrne's character uh, makes, they end up on the outs and uh, they're estranged for quite a long time. And I think the film really treats those relationships with a level of, of seriousness and a level of affection that uh, a lot of noirs and, and gangster films tend not to have when they have that kind of really pulpy plotting. Yeah. Um, and it features one of my favourite scenes in any Coen Brothers film, uh, which is the one where they, there's an attempt on um, Albert Finney's life and uh, he evades his captors in spectacular fashion. Well, spectacular fashion for a man who's kind of in his 60s, uh, escapes along a rooftop um, and walks into oncoming gunfire to take out an entire car full of hoods. 
Yeah, it's. I think it's one of their most stunning action sequences. Uh, you know, I don't think people really think of the Coen brothers as action directors, but every so often they can kind of do a really great kinetic scene. You know, they, they really establish where everyone is and then have the, the characters kind of scrambling for their lives in a way that feels really immediate and but also is you know just really fun that scene is amazingly fun to watch mm. an interesting kind of footnote to that scene is that uh, tom finney was actually uh, only cast in that because the first choice actor uh, is uh, i think the guy is called he plays um nathan arizona in raising arizona uh, oh, yes. trey wilson um yes, that's right yeah he died before before uh, the film was shot so he was replaced by tom finney uh, very short notice. Yeah, that's, that's a terrible shame because that guy was great. He's he's got uh, he's really really fantastic in Racing Arizona. I think he probably would have knocked that part out, that out of the, the park. But you know, Albert Finney, you can't really go wrong. It's kind of a nice counterpoint to the previous uh, Coen Brothers film, Racing Arizona. Is kind of hyper kinetic, kind of screwy, uh, insane kind of road movie. Uh, and then Miller's Cross is very kind of slow and very deliberate and very kind of uh, uh, kind of thoughtfully paced. Yeah, and it's interesting as well to think that that was they they shot that with Barry Sonnenfeld, who was their their DP on their first three films. And when you look at those three films, they could not look less alike. Mm. You know, you have the darkness of Blood Simple, the kind of almost live action Looney Tunes quality of Raising Arizona, and then these kind of really dusky and beautiful autumnal hues of uh, of Miller's Crossing. Uh, but the the, uh, the tone, there's kind of a uniformity of tone across them in, a, a univer- uh, in terms of the writing and that sense of people who appear to be kind of insane in the stories that they're telling, but they have such a command of the story that they are telling that it really feels cohesive and those films could all kind of spiral out of control but the Coens are so good at, at commanding that that uh, it really works it's quite hard to pick uh Coen brothers films out given just how consistent they are do you think we we'll ever see any kind of filmmaker or filmmakers to include these two guys um who are as consistent at making pretty much uh, you know a solid gold film every time uh, I think Paul Thomas Anderson is, is giving them a run for their money. Uh, I think he needs to pick up the pace a little bit, uh, which he seems to be doing in that, you know, he's got a film out uh, this year or early next year, only two years after his last one, instead of five-year gaps that he was doing between Punch Drunk Love and There Will Be Blood and the Master. Um, but yeah, I think the the thing with them, even though they have a few clunkers, you know, like, you know, I'm not a huge fan of Burn After Reading, although I know a lot of people do quite like that one. Uh, and the Lady Killers remake and uh, Intolerable Cruelty aren't great, but you know at the the rate that they produce films, it's amazing that they didn't make more. But they haven't made more bad ones. Mm. Uh, and even the bad ones, there's usually at least something really interesting uh, contained in them. Yeah, I mean, if we are going to take, I mean, Intolerable Cruelty and the Lady Killers remake are the the kind of bona fide uh, suckers in in the list. Um, that still leaves them with, uh, well, kind of more than a dozen kind of, I don't want to say masterpieces, but amazing films. Yeah, even sort of the stuff that doesn't really seem to connect with a big audience like Inside Lewin Davis, which was one of my favourite films of last year. Uh, I think that, that, you know, that stuff is still hugely 
great and impactful, even if, you know, it doesn't connect with an audience the way that True Grit or uh, No Country for Old Men did. Yeah, I, I find it very kind of, I kind of, very strange that as much as they are kind of rightly lauded, that people aren't kind of constantly amazed that the films they come up with aren't, you know, well, it's just it's just amazing to me that they can just keep churning them out one after the other, um, and each one is great, and we're just kind of picking the variances between great films rather than, well, yeah, okay, that one's not as good as the last one. Um, even, I mean, just looking at their um, filmography now, even something like True Grit, which I kind of watched and was just kind of like, yeah, okay, yeah. Uh, but I think about it, it was still probably in the top five films that year, full stop. Yeah, I think that's the the downside of their kind of consistency. Uh, you know, I think in terms of their reception generally, it means that people maybe take them for granted a little bit. Yeah. Miller's um, Crossing, uh, the first of two uh, of Coen Brothers films. They're included on this list. Uh, the other one will be revealed at some point in the future. Um, so, yeah, we re- literally could pick anything. But, yeah, I think one we've picked is interesting enough. Uh, next film, um, probably a good call for best comic book adaptation ever. Um, we're going to talk about History of Violence. Sir, we don't, we don't carry much cash here. You gentlemen are certainly welcome to all of it. Well, I know that, asshole. Believe me. I do know that. Ah! Shut up, bitch! Okay, Billy. But show this asshole we mean business. Uh, what's History of Violence about, Ed? History of Violence is a uh, thriller about a man played by uh, by Viggo Mortensen, who is a guy in a small town who owns a cafe, and he, uh, you know, he seems to have a, he's got a family and you know wife and kids, and he seems to have his life all sorted and doesn't seem to be particularly special. Uh, one day, a couple of guys. Uh, were up to no good. Uh, started making trouble in his neighbourhood. Uh, no, they they come, <laughs> they come into his into his cafe and they try and rob him, and he kills them in violent and dramatic fashion. And he uh, becomes something of a, a local hero for it because these two guys had previously committed. Uh, they they were on a crime spree and they'd murdered people in a hotel, which you see in the opening scene of the film, and it's really horrifying. Uh, but his uh, new fame brings Ed Harris to town, who plays a, a man from his past who is part of a criminal organisation. And through him, you learn that he has this entire history as being part of a mob and that he's moved away and escaped to try and change his life. And now his his history of violence ah, is, uh, mm. is uh, catching up with him. Yeah. Um, and it's... A great film for watching an actor who is probably not considered to be uh, at least more of an action hero post-Lord of the Rings is Viggo Mortensen, which kind of uh, skirts over the fact that he was a character actor before then. Um, But he really does put in a great performance, and there's a really... If you kind of watch it very carefully, watch the kind of physical transformation, which is very subtle, uh, um, between the two kind of his... Uh, family persona, the kind of diner running person and the old kind of hoodlum character is quite remarkable and also features one of my favourite performances from uh, William Hurt. It's absolutely fantastic. 
Yeah, I think the the scene in the coffee shop where he kills the two guys is a really good illustration of the way he changes because you see him interacting with the customers and he's really friendly and just kind of like a good old boy. And then, you know, even when the two guys come in and he's just kind of making chit-chat, there's a certain point at which he realises that something is going to go down. And he Mm. just, you know, just through the simplest of kind of shifts in his body, his kind of demeanour, you suddenly know that this guy is capable of a lot more than you gave him credit for. Uh, and that mm. is that idea of you know things lurking beneath the surface is it's kind of the what the entire film's about and the idea that you can't escape who you truly are uh, and i think that film encapsulates a lot of what's great about the the film in general great kind of spin-off gag uh about the history of violence in the start of uh, season four of archer <laughs> um which i watched uh again the other day where uh you know uh the, the first gag is that uh Archer is has had his memory loss and he is now in the Bob's Burgers uh, cartoon. Um, but then all of a sudden he is kind of has a history of violence style moment where he kills some hoodlums. And if anything, to be thankful for uh, history of violence for it's that. Yeah, that that is a, a great uh, a great kind of mind blowing gag to see uh, <laughs> see the characters from one cartoon animated in the style of another. It's a little uh, disconcerting, but very funny. Mm. Yeah. Um, did you see the follow-up, uh, the uh, Eastern Promises, um, Cronenberg's kind of next film after that, after he kind of, uh, is it too strong to call it a comeback? Uh, well, no, because he's been there for years. And um, there's another rap reference in this one segment. Because uh, uh, I think uh, Cronenberg had been pretty consistent. He'd been working... You know, he'd done Existence a few years ago, which got a lot of really good reviews, and he'd done Spider, which I think is a great film. Uh, so he, he'd been working constantly. I think he'd been getting good notices, but History of Violence definitely felt like a watershed moment that suddenly everyone was paying attention to him again. Yeah, it was kind of a, a crossover hit in a way, in the sense that it got um, kind of a lot of awards notices and um, it certainly seemed to be... Uh, for instance, it was the first film of his that I saw at the cinema. I mean, despite the fact that I'd seen Spider and Existence previously, it was the first one I actually sought to go out and watch. Uh, it seemed to be a big hit as well. Yeah, it's definitely the one that I remember the most noise about at the time. You know, a lot of his other stuff, even his his successful stuff, always felt like it was made for a very cult audience, whereas a History of Violence mm. really seemed to resonate with a lot of people and, you know, got a lot of attention. Uh, Eastern Promises I thought was good but not great and I kind of feel like I haven't seen his most recent one mapped to the stars because it hasn't uh, been on a a wide release yet but I kind of feel like everything he's made since then has been struggling to recapture the for me trying to recapture the mix of you know great storytelling amazing craft and kind of thematic depth of of a history of violence Mm, I thought uh, Eastern Promises was well rubbish uh, I thought that like there was some real nice uh, work in there, and yeah, Viggo Mortensen was great in it. Um, but um, ultimately, all the all the scenes that didn't involve him felt like they were from uh, the BBC daytime soap Doctors. Uh, they were so kind of rigidly acted, and and uh, Naomi Watts' character is probably the least kind of fleshed out character I've ever seen uh, in a modern Hollywood film. It is you know. She's, there's literally nothing there. Um, and yeah, I kind of 
I didn't really like Eastern Promises. We're not talking about that. We're talking about history of violence. Yeah, although I, um, to to jump on Eastern Promises a little more and to kind of get another couple of jabs in, um, yeah, it does feature one of my least favourite scenes in a film in terms of unnecessary character exposition that comes out of come, comes from nowhere. Which is a scene where she is in a house with her family and they're sitting around, and her her dad or her uncle, the older gentleman in her life, just suddenly starts mm. talking about the fact that she had a miscarriage. Uh, for no yeah. good reason and the thing is like the the film has this thing where she's kind of become attached to it to a young baby and you know she's really kind of there's it's trying to give the sense that she feels you know a, a, a connection for this for a deeper reason and then the film kind of fucks it up by just out and out just shouting the reason why she kind of feels for this young child and uh, mm-hmm. yeah that is a scene that even in the cinema when i watched it i was like oh fucking hell <laughs> Yeah, History of Violence um, doesn't have any such scenes. Um, it's a very kind of subtle way. I think it was kind of surprising to see uh, David Cronenberg move in. Uh, I think maybe that's why it was so successful, is David Cronenberg moved away from that kind of body horror element. Even though kind of Existence and Spider weren't fully that, uh, there were elements of it more so than you know than he had in his previous work. But, but um, History of Violence was probably the straightest film he'd done for a long time. Yeah, but when he does have to do... There are moments in it where he uses that to great effect, such as a scene where uh, he uh, breaks a man's neck towards the end of the film. And the uh, effect of it, because the film doesn't have a huge amount of violence and doesn't have a huge amount of graphic stuff going on, is uh, really powerful and really, really uh, horrifying <laughs> because the rest of the film doesn't really kind of play to that uh, that extremeness that he was known for. Um, next on the list, uh, very similar to History of Violence, uh, almost like we planned this, um, kind of thematically, uh, another film about uh, an old compadre drifting into a small town and finding an ex-criminal uh, living the straight life. Uh, we're talking about Out of the Past. Don't lie to me. I didn't. I wouldn't tell him that. I, I wouldn't tell anyone that. I swear it, Jeff. Believe me. Sure. Sure, I believe you. I didn't know what to do. I was always afraid of him and afraid of what I'd done. I couldn't live that way anymore. I couldn't stand it. Jeff, I've missed you. I've wondered about you. Prayed you'd understand. Can you understand? You prayed, Kathy? Can't you even feel sorry for me? I'm not going to try. Jeff. Well, just get out, will you? I have to sleep in this room. Let's just leave it where it all is. Get out. Uh, out of the Past is, uh, I could say, uh, kind of a quintessential film noir. Uh, yeah, you definitely could, mainly because it features Robert Mitchum, who is, along with Bogart, probably one of the real faces you think of when you think of, of noir, of really conflicted and dark heroes. But uh, I think it's a really good example of a noir that, on one level, you know, uh, conforms to a lot of the, the, the stereotypes of it. You know, it's black and white. It's dealing with, you know, small-time hoods and blackmail, and it's, uh, you know, makes great use of expressive shadows and everything. But on the other hand, unlike a lot of noirs, which tend to be set in either New York or L.A., because they were big store, big cities with loads of stories to tell and, you know, all this kind of darkness underneath the surface, it's a film that takes part mostly in a small town in the middle of nowhere, uh, kind of atypical locations for a noir film, at least at that time. Yeah, uh, it's it's the film that if if you if you wanted to say to someone what a film noir was, um, 
giving them out of the past to watch would be great. It does feature all those kind of touchstones um, before they kind of became very hackneyed. But it also is a film that packs quite a kind of psychological punch. Yeah, because it's all about a man who is trying to uh, get away from his past. But, you know, it, it catches up to him much like History of Violence. But it kind of explores the nature of, you know, whether or not someone can change, whether or not uh, it is possible for not just him, but also the the Jane Greer uh, character, who is kind of his his love ent- interest in the film and who whose uh, machinations kind of drive the the story. You know, whether or not someone like that is beyond redemption. Yeah, and are they? Uh, the film is kind of ambivalent on that point, or ambiguous on it. Mm. You know, it's a film that has arguments for either side. Uh, and I think like a lot of noirs, it, it's great because it really does enjoy playing in that realm of uncertainty. Which is something that a lot of kind of modern takes on noir, they seem to kind of miss the point. I think as we speak now, uh, Robert Rodriguez's Sin City 2 is uh, kind of uh, troubling the cinemas. Um, and for people like Rodriguez, noir basically means a voiceover plus black and white plus tits, which is the kind of the polar opposite, even though those elements are there in something like Out of the Past, but it's the polar opposite of what the actual uh, effect is supposed to be. Yeah, because that, that, those films and also the books that they're based on, they're all about the affectations of noir, uh, whereas a lot of... Uh, the uh, uh, you know, what's great about Out of the Past is it doesn't really feel arch. It definitely it tries to engage with the psychology of its characters in a real and kind of substantial way. And obviously, it does have you know it has witty lines and it has this kind of element of criminality to it, but it's not solely defined by those things. Mm. And uh, Kurt Douglas before he was. Uh... Uh, kind of a, a golden boy. He, he plays a kind of a chilling villain in this. Yeah, because he's very affable. Mm. Like he, when you first see him, he's just kind of really jovial and happy, and that makes you know the the various uh, crimes that he asks people to do as this uh, kind of mid level crime boss feel all the worse because you can see why people would want to work for this guy. He's not a outwardly a monster. But you get the sense that if you crossed him, he would destroy you in an instant. If The Vanishing from last week had the uh, worst remake of all time, then Out of the Past is probably a close second. Mm. Uh, it was remade in the 80s as Against All Odds uh, with a great cast of uh, Jeff Bridges and James Woods. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's the film that gave us the uh, the song by Phil Collins of the same name and um, is unbelievably bad. Like, Like, kind of... Uh, almost inconceivably wretched, I would say, that film is. Um, please, please uh, do not watch that by mistake. Luckily, they changed the title, so you wouldn't kind of think it was think it was the original. What is it with Jeff Bridges' show starring in terrible remakes? Yeah, he's guilty on three counts so far. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that, like you say, he's the most represented actor on this list in the sense that, you know, and he had a great career, so maybe he just had to... You just have to keep turning up in some some rum films just to kind of keep the the equilibrium in balance. Otherwise, his career would be too good. Yeah, people would start to suspect that he was inhuman. Yeah, exactly. And then you see a film like Blown Away, and uh, well, yeah, 
what more can you say, really? Um, another film that lurks in the genre ghetto, uh, a theme that's developing quite strongly over these episodes, um, is Halloween. Uh, kind of the uh, prototype slasher film, I suppose, infinitely copied, uh, very, very rarely bettered. Um, people seem to forget that how good an actual film Halloween is, how how well it's directed, how good and tight the script is, um, and you know just how immaculately put together that film is. Yeah, I think at the time, I remember Pauline Kael was a little dismissive about it as being like a psycho rehash. Yeah, and I think that uh, uh, history has proved her wrong. Uh, but, you know, Pauline Kael was a, was a great writer, but she didn't always uh, get it right. And I think that uh, it is just, uh, in a lot of, as, like a lot of uh, John Carpenter's films, it is a masterclass in kind of very clean uh, style, uh, to the extent that it almost seems like it does not have a style at all. Uh, it's, you know, very clean compositions. There's no kind of ostentatious moments it's just about building tension slowly and you know the simple things of having someone step into frame from a distance and just kind of stand there being creepy and then disappear the next time someone looks at them stuff that's very very simple in execution but you know when you see it done well it can be really chilling yeah yeah and it's do you think it falls victim to a lot of the films that have come out in its wake oh undoubtedly yeah there's a lot of Including a lot of its own sequels. <laughs> well, yeah. Uh, I think that, like a lot of uh, a lot of horror films that ended up spawning franchises, uh, each subsequent version ruins the mystique of the first one. I think every what, one of the films that's great. Uh, one of the things that's really great about the uh, the original film is that it is. Uh, it, it doesn't really play up the idea that Michael Myers is in any way supernatural. It just mm. suggests that he's a big, insane person who will kill people for his own kind of twisted uh, reasons that aren't really apparent. You know, you know that he killed his sister and went to a mental institution and he's clearly hung up on, on sex. But other than that, uh, it doesn't really try and explain him too much. He's just there and he's just a force. You know, there's a reason why he's called the shape in the script. Uh, mm. You know, he, that's just kind of what he is. And, you know, subsequent films like the the remake that tried to explain his backstory and the other films which essentially just make him into a an inhuman monster, uh, I think they dilute what's great about the first one, which is that it is a fairly straight-ahead uh, slasher film that just portrays him as a, ma- a, a normal person who was uh, broken in the head. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, like the the two moments that kind of um, set Halloween apart for me from other horror films, which is kind of well, I didn't see it in you know when it came out because obviously I wasn't born. Um, but you know, and I'd obviously seen a lot of other slasher films before I actually got around seeing Halloween, but still the ones that set it apart from all those other ones is there's a moment where he kind of stabs the guy and pins him to the wall. And in a lot of other slasher films that have just been, you know, you know, let's just try and think of a novel way to kill someone. But then there's, he just kind of stands and looks at the body and just kind of tilts his head to one side as if a kind of curious child has 
is looking at the wing, like a bee has just pulled the wings off of or something. Um, it's, and if you take that moment away, it's that's just really creepy and uh, an actual character moment for a killer rather than, you know, what the sequels and the, you know, things like the Friday the 13th films becomes, which is just more and more elaborate ways in which to dispatch people with their tits out. Yeah, and I think it, it helps that it has a pretty low body count, mm. uh, which I think is something that helps a lot in slasher films that to kind of keep them from becoming like a just an endless possession of uh, kind of faceless teenagers being slaughtered. I think, you know, getting to spend time with the Jamie Lee Curtis character and, you know, getting a sense of, of unease kind of creeping into the film uh, makes the moment when people actually start dying uh, all the more effective. And it's that sense of kind of release that comes when you get into the final third of the film and it is, you know, kind of people kind of scrambling to survive. And the, it, it, no matter how many inventive ways you come up with to kill people, it still becomes a little boring and repetitive after a while. Whereas if there's only like four or five deaths in a film, uh, each one has a bigger impact. Mm. Yeah, and it's um, interesting to note that the first Halloween sequel isn't terrible. Um, the one which kind of literally continues the action that night. Uh, and the third, the second Halloween sequel, Halloween 3, is actually really great because it has, it's got no connection at all to the first two films. Yeah, it's a real shame that they didn't follow through with the original plan, which was to essentially make it a an anthology series where every instalment would be about something different and then it would just take place at Halloween. Um, mm. I think there were the, the failure of the third one compared to the first two pretty much sealed its fate and you know the first what the fourth one obviously is called the return of michael myers and that kind of establishes very clearly what the uh intentions of the people who took over the franchise from john carpenter was uh it was essentially just to crank out as many films with this single fairly boring uh character uh for as long as they could mm. and they really have flogged that horse i mean i think when it got to the point where uh, Buster Rhymes uh, is uh, killing Michael Myers with the kiss-off line, trick-or-treat, motherfucker. Um, uh, John Carpenter, pretty well represented on this list. Halloween, for me, probably his kind of purest film in, in the sense that it, it is his uh, filmmaking uh, acumen uh, most uh, blatantly on display, I think I'd probably say. Um, we're going to follow Halloween with another horror film, uh, but uh, another horror film that is kind of uh, altogether considered more highbrow, uh, although in our alternate 100 they sit side by side. Um, we're talking about Nicholas Rogue's Don't Look Now. I've seen your little girl and she was laughing. Yes, my sister's psychic. She wants you to know. I've seen her and she wants you to know that she's happy. Christy. Christine. My daughter is dead, Laura. She does not come peeping with messages back from behind the grave. Yes. Christine is dead. Yes. She is dead. Yes. Dead, 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 dead. Um, is it fair to call Don't Look Now a horror film? Because I feel like a lot of film snobs want to wrest it away from the horror genre. Uh, I, I would... I've always thought of it as a horror film because it is, you know, it's not 
a hugely graphic horror film except you know sort of in its final moments but mainly it is about the horror of people being in a strange place uh you know this couple who whose daughter dies in the opening scenes and who go to Venice to try and deal with their grief so it, you, you know you can reclassify it as a relationship drama if you like but it has that same feeling of something like uh, another Donald Sutherland film, you know, the, the 78 uh, Invasions of the Body Snatchers, where there's, there's just this sense that people around you know something that you don't. Mm. And I think the sense that it creates of people being in a strange place and, you know, strange deaths happening around them all the time, that takes it from being a, you know, just a, a drama about, you know, a, a couple dealing with the collapse of their marriage to a genuine place of real horror and, uh, you know, disturbing uh, 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 events. Yeah, it's probably not... Uh, I mean, a lot of people don't want to talk about it as a horror film because it is uh, um, uh, kind of, you know, it's made like a proper film, as it were. <laughs> I mean, there are scares in it, um, but um, it's, you know, it's kind of loaded with kind of imagery and symbolism and like their marriages kind of dying and, and their, their kid has died. So Donald Sutherland's job is to kind of fix up old and dead things. Uh, he's a kind of a restorative painter, isn't he, I think, in Venice. And it, the whole film kind of has this this kind of oppressive atmosphere, um, which is kind of lifted a little bit when there's that kind of uh, much-talked-about sex scene um, and the kind of suggestion that they've kind of created a new life, um, which for a lot of films would have been where it changed. But no, this one goes kind of awful. Yeah, and it also has, you know, Rogue is a, someone who is is very known for his, the way that he played with chronology and his use of kind of dissociative editing. And you can see it in that sex scene where he intercuts between them having sex and then kind of putting their clothes on and kind of, you know, this kind of post-coital uh, malaise that kind of settles over them. And the fact that the film uh, kind of jumps around a lot in, in not as much as something like the, the man who fell to earth, but definitely kind of, uh, jumps around in time a bit to leave you disorientated. And, mm. and that level of kind of experimentation on, and craft is something that I think film snobs try not to associate with horror films and why they want to reclaim it as just a, a, a classic film in general, which I would say it is. I say it is a classic film, but I also say that it is undoubtedly a horror film. Yeah, the end is pretty fucking horrific. It is, and uh, I went to when I went to Venice for the first time after watching it, uh, it's hard not to view the streets of Venice without imagining someone kind of running around in a little red cape uh, and not feeling a little bit un- unnerved by the place. Yeah, I still, if I ever see a child in the street wearing a kind of a red, uh, red kind of coat, I will always stay well clear, um, uh, unless I can see their face, in which case it's all right, but never approach one kind of from behind and tap on the shoulder, that would be a terrible move. Uh, moving on uh, from um, Don't Look Now, uh, we're going to come to a filmmaker we mentioned earlier, um, Paul Thomas Anderson. Um, we're going to talk about his uh, sophomore film, Boogie Nights. Okay, Derek, you ready? Yeah, I was born ready, Nick. Let's go, man. Derek Diggler demo. Get vocals up. You got the touch. Take seven. Excuse me, Ruth. Power. 
signaling, more vocals. You gotta be over here. Okay, less bass, less bass. That's, that's, that's not the bass. Um, I read something the other day, um, and it kind of said that it would be easy to write off Boogie Nights as one of those post-Pulp Fiction, multi-stranded narrative, interweaving storyline uh, films. Um, but knowing what we know now about Paul Thomas Anderson, uh, that notion seems uh, vaguely ridiculous. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the it, it, it definitely feels like a film that could only have emerged in the in the wake of the success of Pulp Fiction, which mm. has a similar kind of feel. They're both films that have these kind of big stra- uh, multi-character narratives, or, or or in the wake of the Player, the Robert Altman film, which. Uh, you know, Altman is someone that uh, P.T. Anderson always gets uh, compared to quite a lot, um, with some merit, but I think that he is a lot more concerned with uh, plot and style than Altman was. Uh, I think you can really see in Boogie Nights, it, it, he's not as fully formed a filmmaker as he would be doing uh, Magnolia or... or there will be blood, which feel entirely like the vision of someone who is their own artist. But you can definitely see it as a as someone kind of finding themselves by squishing together all of their various influences. You know, it has the multi-character kind of panoramic view of something like Nashville, but it also has the kind of force or camera work of a Martin Scorsese or a Jonathan Demme. Uh, and it's it's really interesting seeing someone who was, was very young, I think he was 27 when he made it. Mm. Uh, depressingly, for someone who just turned 28. Uh, you know, he... Yeah. I actually think he was younger than that. I think he was 27 when he made Magnolia. Oh, bastard. But, you know... I know, right? But, uh, you know, someone who is still finding their voice, but, you know, is able to combine all these different influences into a work that feels very new and fresh, even though you, if you kind of... In the same way that like Pulp Fiction and Reservoir Dogs, you can pick apart all the influences and say, oh, he got this from this and he got this from that film. But, you know, the way that they collide feels new and inventive. Mm, yeah. Sorry, just to correct that, he was 26 when he made uh, Boogie Nights, okay. which is bloody young enough. <laughs> um, yeah, it is his most kind of uh, openly... Um, sp- I don't know, most openly sprawling film, Magnolia... Uh, feels like it certainly has slightly less characters. Does it? I, I get the feeling it feels like it has far more, but maybe uh, Boogie Nights has fewer developed characters. Yeah, there's a lot of like extra little characters on the side that don't have uh, as big a roles. But um, even them, but yeah. even those, they kind of feel like they have arcs. Like uh, mm. you know, uh, William H. Macy's character who exits the film fairly early on. Uh, you really yeah. feel like you understand what he's about and uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman's uh, performance, you know, is really great and you really kind of feel the development of his character from, you know, when you first see him, when he's kind of a creep to, you know, the end of the film where uh, he's still a creep, but you feel a certain degree of sympathy for him. You know, even the minor characters in that film feel... Uh, that they have some sort of arc, even though the film is primarily, like a lot of Paul Thomas Anderson films, the, about kind of surrogate father and son relationship. It's an odd film, isn't it, in the sense that his first film was a bit of a flop mm. um, that no one went to see, but yet still 
someone decided it'd be a good idea to give him quite a lot of money to watch Boogie Nights, to make Boogie Nights a film which is certainly ambitious in its scope. Yeah, I think that the the floppiness of uh, Hard Eight slash Sydney was, I think a lot of people knew that that wasn't really Paul Thomas Anderson's fault because it was a film that was taken away from him and, you know, he had to fight to get his cut released and, you know, he eventually managed to get it, but it was a film that he had a very bad time making and he had uh, a lot of trouble getting out there. And I think by the end of it, similar to Margaret, the film we talked about last time, uh, the studio kind of didn't want to promote it and they didn't really make much of a push behind it. But the people mm. who did see it and, you know, people who worked at other studios saw something in it that made them think, we want to work with this guy. And uh, it's kind of amazing that he was given final cut on Boogie Nights after that, like you say, because, but I think uh, Sydney was a really formative experience for him because he decided he only wanted to make the films the way that he wanted to make them. Do you think it would have struggled to get it made without someone like Mark Wahlberg in the lead? Uh, I think he probably... I think he would have struggled to get it made if he had someone who was a smaller star or a bigger star. Because right, okay. because I imagine if you get, like... Uh, obviously, Tom Cruise worked with him in, in Magnolia after he'd had a huge hit, but if you had someone of a, a Tom Cruise level who maybe had an ego and wanted to kind of make the film all about him, more so than it already is... Uh, he might have struggled, the clash of egos might have unbalanced the film or might have made things difficult. Or if he had, you know, had someone who didn't have any name recognition, then, you know, you're next in line in terms of, like, the biggest names involved is, like, oh, what, Burt Reynolds, the guy who was a big hit, a big deal 20 years ago and then no one cares about. Uh, so, yeah, I think Wahlberg is the right level that he probably didn't have too much of an ego and didn't try and force his personality on it too much but enough of a name that people kind of went, oh, Mark Wahlberg, that's interesting. It's I, no, I kind of noticed this when I watched it last, but Boogie Nights is practically, um, in a structural sense, definitely, the exact same film as Goodfellas. Mm, because it's all about someone being uh, entering into a very kind of close-knit, closeted world uh, and very slowly having drugs enter into their life and everything kind of unravel until a point yeah. until a point where things kind of wrap up in ramp up in intensity until the very end yeah yeah totally it's kind of like i think when i was watching goodfellas and you kind of watch the, the his day where he's having the kind of cocaine meltdown when he thinks the helicopter's following him everywhere and he gets busted and the the kind of similar bit in uh, in um boogie nights when you know they go we've talked about it on a previous episode um, where they go to try and buy the drugs from Alfred Molina, and you could say that goes pear-shaped. Um, it, it has a very similar feel. Like I say, it's got the Altman kind of um, approach, but with the Scorsese energy. In, it also takes the time to kind of slow down, because even when you have that scene with the Alfred Molina, the, the moment that I always kind of think of is the way that when they start listening to Jesse's Girl, the camera just very, very slowly zooms in on Mark Wahlberg's face for mm. what feels like about a minute. You know, the film just ver- takes its time to slow down and kind of focus on him as he's trying to make the decision of whether or not they're going to go through with this rob, this very ill-advised robbery. And that's something that you don't... I think that's something that sets it apart from from Goodfellas, which is all intensity all the time. Weird case for Burt Reynolds in that, in that he is... Um brilliant in the film he uh 
received an Oscar nomination for his performance, but didn't he kind of disown the film before it had even come out, basically saying it was kind of trash, um, not realising how well it would be received? Yeah, he he definitely did exactly that. He, I believe he didn't like working with Paul Thomas Anderson, and I think he felt that the film didn't give him enough to do, even though you know it's a great performance by him in it, and it is probably one of his best performances, certainly in the last 20 years, because he never really followed it with anything significant afterwards. The penultimate film we're going to talk about today uh, is uh, kind of a bit of an oddity. It's a film that kind of came out of nowhere, and most people involved, with the exception of someone we're going to mention and have mentioned about 85 times in this podcast, Jeff Bridges, um, involves kind of separate to nothing. The film is called Cutter's Way. You don't have to go. Yeah, I got to, uh, I got to see a sick friend. He is, he's sick. Well, wasn't that good anyway. Remind me not to get on your bad side. I suppose if you're going to be really lazy and uh, attempt to boil down Cutter's Way to someone who hadn't seen it, you could say it's a non-comedic version of The Big Lebowski <laughs> Yeah, it really is. It's kind of weird when you watch it for the first time after watching The Big Lebowski lots, as I have, uh, to see a a version of Big Lebowski that uh, doesn't really have any gags and is deadly serious in its uh, its uh, mystery. Which, uh, unlike the kind of the case in The Big Lebowski, where it's just about rich people essentially fucking each other around, uh, it's mm. about uh, rich people fucking everyone else and about you know corruption and political uh, conspiracies but uh yeah it has this kind of very shaggy dog kind of feel to it you know of, of people who are on the fringes of society trying to make a difference yeah and very much like um big lebowski um jeff bridges is uh, kind of dragged reluctantly into trying to solve uh some kind of uh, wrongdoing committed by a very rich person uh, by a crazed vietnam vet <laughs> Yeah, the parallels are, are weird, and it kind of makes you wonder how much the Coen brothers were huge fans. Um, unlike Big Lebowski, it is a very kind of sobering, very kind of dark film, um, like you say, without a whole lot of loves, and um, yeah, with an incredibly bleak worldview. Yeah, it definitely feels like a film coming at the tail end of the 70s, and that kind of having that level of post-Watergate uh, cynicism that you also see in... Yeah, other films in this list, like The Parallax View. Mm. It certainly feels like a hangover film, doesn't it, from from that era? Yeah, because it's got all of the uh, darkness of a 70s film, but perhaps none of the... less of the kind of uh, light lightness and kind of sense of humour that you see cropping up in uh, even something like The Parallax View, which is a very dark film, but, you know, you still have Warren Beatty kind of being funny and charming. In, uh, in Cutter's Way, it's all kind of... There's, there's kind of very little of that. It's very, very serious. Mm. It's all bleak all the time. Yeah, which uh, is great. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, it's uh, director, uh, Ivan Passer, um, was known... He was kind of a very kind of uh, famous director from the Czech New Wave, so he was kind of uh, very much uh, kind of renowned for his films in that, that movement. But he kind of moved to um, America and... Cutter's Way seems to be the only one that did anything. Uh, and when I say did anything, it was a film that was mostly forgotten until maybe like 25 years later. 
Yeah, that's a terrible shame. I think we talk in the past about directors who come over to America and just can't seem to make it happen. Um, and you kind of think that coming over at that time when there's still a certain degree of uh, freedom afforded to directors would have would have worked for him, but uh, sadly it just didn't, even though the film he made is, is an absolute masterpiece. Uh, the film is remarkable. Uh, John Hurd's performance as um, the aforementioned crazed Vietnam vet is pretty terrifying. <laughs> uh, probably the worst person to go out for a drink with ever. Um yeah, it's it's a film that is widely available and I'd recommend everyone kind of checks it out because, uh, I mean, we probably call this the 100 greatest films starring Jeff Bridges because um, it's starting to become, you know, a bit of a bit of a theme. Yeah, except uh, we're even getting in the chance to mention the bad ones. Yes, yes, we have actually managed to um, mention Blown Away in this podcast. Uh, along the, alongside things like Last Picture Show and uh, Cutter's Way. Um, that's the hold that Mr Bridges has over us. Um, the last film we're going to talk about today, um, following the bleakness of Cutter's Way, is a film is the opposite of bleak, although uh, it can bring a tear to the eye. Um, we're talking about Brad Bird's The Iron Giant. Oh, no. It's a missile. When it comes down, everyone will die. There it is! <laughs> Shouldn't we get to a shelter? It wouldn't matter. You'd have to be a very cold-hearted person not to like the Iron Giant, wouldn't you? Yeah, it's got pretty much everything you could possibly want in an animated film. It's got humour, it's got uh, real emotion, uh, it's got a uh, a really uh, heart-rending ending, and it's got a load of Cold War symbolism in there, for uh, which is what the kids always uh, are after. Yeah, it's a little wonder it died at the box office, isn't it? Yeah, it's very, very unfortunate, um, although I, I can't uh, act superior to that, because I remember when it was coming out, I looked at it and just kind of went, why do I want to watch that? But I was 13 and an arsehole, so, mm, okay. so that was that was my own fault. It's really my fault the film didn't do well. <laughs> yeah, I mean, to be honest, I was 17 when it came out, so I had little interest in going to see it, but uh, having visited as, uh, as an adult, it is a delightful film, stylistically, like you say, uh, kind of takes its cues from kind of 50s kind of um, Cold War stylings. Um, the the kind of the, the kind of uh, American kind of small town feel very much feels like a kind of uh, Norman Rockwell painting or something. I've only said Sam Rockwell painting, um, <laughs> which would be interesting. I'm sure amongst the many things he excels at, he can paint as well. Um, but it's an immaculately conceived and designed film um, beautifully written, um, you know, it's probably uh, Jennifer Aniston's best film. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's that's probably true. She's uh, she's great as the voice of the mum mm-hmm. in that. Uh, I think that's one of the 
few roles in which she kind of doesn't really kind of be straining with the comedy. Yeah. Uh, she it comes quite naturally from her, which is weird considering that of animation is probably one of the least natural uh, forms of performance in uh, in cinema. Yeah, um, it's uh, based on the Ted Hughes book, isn't it? The Iron Man, I believe it's called. It's quite a loose adaptation in that they both are about a young boy meeting a a creature from another world that's a giant robot and becoming friends, but obviously. Brad Bird moves to setting from England to America in the 50s and kind of brings in, I think, a lot of his own uh, kind of obsessions uh, from, you know, a kid growing up during that time, which uh, gives it its own uh, unique feeling. Mm. Um, why do you think that it uh, fared so badly at the box office, given the fact that, uh, I know that children and parents don't tend to listen to critics, but it was critically... Uh, very well regarded at the time, but uh, died of death at the box office. I think it probably suffered a little bit from the fact that uh, it was it came sort of as hand drawn animation was starting to become less popular. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's kind of in that period, you know, Disney films were still doing really well, but not as well as they had been a few years earlier. Um, and uh, computer animated films were becoming more and more popular and would soon kind of dominate the the animation market. So. It just uh, and coming from a non Disney studio, that probably meant that it just didn't have have the uh, marketing and distribution might behind it that that could have turned it into a bigger hit. Mm. Uh, and also, I think it is a lot darker than uh, a lot of uh, animated fare certainly that was being made at the time because it deals with uh, you know notions of of war and paranoia and. Uh, it's kind of a film that is is brilliant, but it's not something that's kind of easy to kind of sell in a trailer. Yeah, and it's um, perhaps to be kind of enjoyed like by slightly older children as well. Uh, I think that there's not a lot of pandering to younger kids in there, I don't think. No, and it does kind of... It doesn't... Uh, try and make its uh, its child lead actor seem kind of like overly precocious. It does make him into this kind of overexcitable little puppy of a child, mm. uh, which can be a little annoying, but in a, in a way that feels, you know, kind of accurate for a kid who's sort of uh, uh, prepubescent and just really excited over meeting a giant robot. Yeah, giant robot uh, voiced by Vin, Vin Diesel. Um, uh, we recently heard him doing some voice acting, very similar effect in... Uh, Guardians of the Galaxy. Um, he's really good in, in the Iron Giant, given that it can't have been the toughest day at the office. Yeah, I think uh, when you kind of limit the amount of words that he can say, and you you kind of force him to to cram all of his kind of earnestness and emotion into a single uh, or a handful of lines of dialogue, he can make a really big impression. Mm. As uh, we found out in Guardians of the Galaxy, because he only has like three or four words that he repeats over the course of the film. Uh, he's a little more uh, uh, perspicacious in The Iron Giant, but I think he probably only says about 20 words in total. Yeah, um, one of which is Superman, which will bring a tear to everyone's eye uh, when they remember it or when they hear it for the first time. Yeah, to uh, to quote Bernard Manning, it'll make you cry all the water out of your body. <laughs> I didn't think we would get to an Iron Bernard Manning quote at all um, during this series of 100 films, but it's only taken us 50. So, you know, well done. 
that's well ahead of schedule on my on my plan. Yeah, uh, I was going to drop it by about episode seven or eight, but I thought this is the natural point. Yeah, totally. Um, um, I was reading about this, and it had quite a lot of kind of production problems uh, in the sense that, like, because it wasn't a Disney film and uh, it was seen as quite expensive, it tried to make a lot of shortcuts, and they kind of bundled it together uh, with half the time, um, not as much development money. And uh, it says here on Wikipedia um, that they are uh, like you have to rope in kind of students from like uh, uh, California Institute of Art um, to kind of help with it. Um, it doesn't show in the film at all, does it? No, it's it's really stunning, and it also makes the mix of three uh, D and two D animation work in a way that sometimes can look a little artificial and fake. Mm. But there, the kind of melding of the two is kind of uh, really, really works and really seamless, especially because the Iron Giant is a kind of a 3D uh, creation put into a 2D world, and that kind of heightens the sense of him being uh, otherworldly. Mm. Yeah, it is um, one of my favourite looking uh, films. It also sounds uh, fantastic. They're kind of a lot of. Um, I can't remember who does the score, but they're kind of a lot of uh, nods to things like uh, North by Northwest and kind of those old Bernard Herrmann scores. Yeah, it's like a lot of um, Brad Bird's subsequent stuff and certainly the stuff he would go on to do with Pixar. Uh, it feels like a kind of cohesive whole. Mm. You know, every element of it serves to you know help create this idea of uh, a a world that exists both before and after the film starts. Mm. Uh, Iron Giant uh, is also, I found out, um, like produced by Pete Townsend, who'd been trying to make a musical out of it for years. Mm. That's a weird kind of uh, combo, isn't it? Yeah, it's. Uh, I guess uh, Pete Townsend is, is just in general is renowned for doing weird concept albums. Anyway, mm. uh, so had he been able to create a musical of it, it probably would have been uh, quite intriguing and weird. Uh, but I, I'm, I think I prefer the version that we got. Yes. Uh, really. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I wouldn't change a thing about it. It's bloody lovely. Um, okay, that's it for this 10. Uh, let's say we're halfway through the list. Uh, we're kind of rattling through. We're on course to finish before December which is going to be some kind of achievement, I think. Definitely. Yeah. Um, if you've liked the show, uh, then um, uh, subscribe to it on iTunes or you can listen to us on Stitcher Smart Radio. Um, you can like us on Facebook and find us on Twitter and follow us on that. Um, and if you do enjoy the show, give us a little review um, on on the iTunes or the Stitcher um, because it helps people find us. Um, until the next episode it's goodbye from me and goodbye from me and goodbye from me, and goodbye from me.